If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, why not become a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh? Our membership provides you with access to the RCPE educational portal, the live evening medical updates, and you have options to view the symposia both in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, please go to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website. Hello everyone and welcome back to Clinical Conversations brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. My name is Dr. Marilena Giannudi and I'm a member of the Trainee and Members Committee of the College. I'm also an academic cardiology trainee in West Yorkshire. Today I am joined by Professor Al Mohammed, who's a consultant cardiologist and professor of cardiology within Sheffield Teaching Hospitals. He has an interest in heart failure, infective endocarditis and cardiac imaging. We will be discussing pericardial disease. Professor Al Mohammed, welcome. Thank you so much for the invitation. So, if it's okay with you, I think we should start by just going over the basics of pericarditis for our listeners. What are the main things that we should be looking for when we're considering a diagnosis of pericarditis? Sure, thank you. Pericarditis is a common problem that can face patients with otherwise normal hearts who usually present with either what we call idiopathic, we say it idiopathic because we don't know why they happen, or because they are triggered by a viral infection or an immunological response to a trigger. Whatever the origin of pericarditis might be, the usual way a patient presents is with pain. So they do have chest pain, We in the medical profession get terribly excited when we hear somebody is having chest pain because the three things that come to mind are pulmonary embolus, aortic dissection, and a heart attack. And of course, in pericarditis, it's none of the above. So the skill here is to be able to quickly assess the patient, assure ourselves that it is none of the above, and then try to figure out what to do with the patient and for the patient. The most important features are that while the pain could take several forms, it frequently is very similar in character to angina. So it is usually heaviness, tightness, dullness. But what differentiates it from angina and heart attacks is the fact that it is usually related to posture. So if you have such a patient, It doesn't take long to say to them, have you noticed any worsening of the pain by lying down? Have you noticed any improvement by leaning forward? And if they haven't looked for that, it takes maybe half a minute for you to do the maneuvers with them by changing their position or helping them to change the position. And when they lean forward, you need to ask them to really lean forward towards their knees and ask them, is the pain any easier. And the same when you lay them flat. The second feature that really helps is that although the pain may not necessarily be sharp, although it can be sharp, but usually not, it does have a pleuritic component. So usually the pain gets worse on breathing in. Now that's where you start worrying about PE, don't you? But of course, in there, There might be breathlessness, but it is not as overt as in PE. 
The other issue with pericarditis is, apart from the symptoms, is of course you would want to do a 12-lead ECG. Of course, there is a possibility that BCG might be just normal. But if you are really careful, you might pick up subtle changes, especially a saddled shape, ST elevation, which can be either focal or generalized. In this, people need to be wary not to jump to conclusion and call that an ST elevation MI because it's not convex, it's usually concave. Sometimes the pericarditic process can be associated with T-wave inversion, which looks very much like the ischemic change you see with T-wave. I was just going to ask, you mentioned that one of our big differentials for this could possibly be myocardial infarction. Again, you're mentioning the real difficulties sometimes with the ECG changes that we see. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in the history other than the you know pleuritic elements and the postural changes that can help us distinguish these patients? So for example, you mentioned that commonly can be induced by a virus. Are these patients coming in typically with a viral prodrome that they've reported? you know, a one or two weeks before presentation, or can it be quite an acute onset? Right. That's a very good question, Andrew Mader. Thank you for that. So pericarditis can be acute, subacute, or chronic. So the majority of the patients will be coming to the attention of a junior medical doctor acutely in A&E or on the wards or post-MI, of course, and usually will have some viral symptoms such as a runny nose or feeling run down or having a slight temperature. But I do not want the trainees to consider that that prodrome is a must to have for there to be a diagnosis of pericarditis. So when that prodrome is present, it's very helpful, but its absence does not rule out pericarditis. So that's point number one. Point number two is that Not every pericarditis is caused by viral infection, and therefore the absence of that prodrome is not to be surprising to people because some of the acute pericarditis episodes happen post-MI on day two, three. And sometimes if one is not careful, they jump to conclusion and say, maybe the stent that my boss had deployed two days ago is blocking off when it is not really. It's pericarditis following the transmural nature of the infarction. So there are circumstances where you can still have a clue as to why this pain is happening. Now, one of the other differentials is myocarditis. And myocarditis is usually something that is difficult to diagnose because it presents with people coming with chest pain, but they are usually unwell, not infrequently with a bit of heart failure because the heart muscle is affected and they will have ST elevation. So not infrequently, they end up having an angiogram that may or may not show coronary artery disease, but usually they don't need a stent, of course. These are easier to differentiate from pericarditis, but there are some people who will have myopericarditis. In other words, they will have all the features that I mentioned earlier of pericarditis, but their blood tests will come back as showing troponin elevation. So how do we then differentiate myocarditis 
from pericarditis? And how do we differentiate pericarditis from myocarditis? The two other sides, so pericarditis on the one side will not have a rise in troponin. Myocarditis will always have a rise in troponin. Myopericarditis can have a combination of the two features, and it depends on whether the troponin rise was A, high, and B, sustained, that would allow me to differentiate whether myocarditis is the dominant feature or pericarditis is the dominant feature. So just to recap on that, pericarditis will not have troponin rise, end. Myocarditis always will have troponin rise, but in myocarditis, you have a rise in troponin, which doesn't drop quickly, unlike myocardial infarction. We do know that in myocardial infarction, it might take up to 10, 12 days for the troponin to go back to normal if you had a massive troponin rise. However, the drop starts within hours, whereas in myocarditis, you go up and you reach a plateau and you stay having similar or the same level of troponin release for several days and sometimes a week or 10 days. So when you see that, that is mainly myocarditis with some pericardial reaction. So the area in between, which causes a lot of confusion, you treat them as myocarditis if the troponin rise is sustained. And of course, they are having signs and symptoms of heart failure with breathlessness, weakness, tiredness, or you treat them as pericarditis if the troponin is small rise and drops quickly. Thank you for that. And other than ECG changes and the troponin that you mentioned, are there any other investigations that we can be doing to help us with our diagnosis? Or should we just be sticking to, you know, our good old fashioned bedside test, ECG and blood tests? Right. So, of course, we only touched upon the story and we mentioned the blood test and the ECG, but we have not touched at all upon a very important feature of what we do. That is the clinical examination. And on clinical examination in pericarditis, we all are looking for the classic pericardial friction rub, which can come either as monophasic, biphasic, and sometimes triphasic pericardial friction rub. The pericardial friction rub is heard best with your diaphragm of the stethoscope without you pressing too hard against the chest wall and while the patient is holding their breath. And when there is a pericardial friction rub, you hear a noise very similar to what you can hear if you get some hair and you rub it near your ear. So it's a very scratchy noise that happens. And as I said, it could be either systolic or systolic and diastolic, and sometimes triple when there is the equivalent of the third heart sound or what we call the pericardial knock. And that's when you get triphasic pericardial friction rub. I need to say to the juniors that it's very important when you hear a loud pericardial friction rub not to offer diagnosis of murmurs because you can be misled by those. You also need to consider doing other tests such as checking signs of inflammation 
such as the ESR, the CRP. Please note here that the rise of ESR and CRP, particularly if they are very high, supports the diagnosis of pericarditis. However, the normality of both of them does not rule out pericarditis. So many of the patients come in to A&E or to the acute ward with acute pericarditis and their CRP and ESR are not particularly elevated. So I would not worry about normality, but a positive elevation there would help me. Another very important test that the general physician can order is to ask yourself and me to arrange for the patient to have an echo. Now, again, similar story here, the echocardiogram may or may not show us a small degree of pericardial effusion. Rarely, the pericardial layer, the parietal pericardium might look thickened in severe cases, and sometimes the visceral pericardium may look bright on echo. But all these changes are helpful when present, and they are not excluding the diagnosis by their absence. I mentioned earlier acute, chronic, and subacute pericarditis, but failed to define those. And I think it's important to say that in acute pericarditis, the story is up to a week. The chronic pericarditis goes up to three months. So a patient says to you, I've been getting this pain in a recurrent fashion for the past 12 weeks, and the subacute are somewhere between one and 12 weeks. And what should we be considering with regards to treating these patients? What are the optimal management options that we have for both pericarditis and myocarditis? Fantastic. So first of all, with pericarditis, people still give sometimes non-stodal anti-inflammatory agents such as, say, brufen, uh, 400 milligram three times a day for a week or two. But I would not suggest that anymore because we have a superior agent that was proven to not only abort the majority of the attacks of acute pericarditis, but more importantly, reduce the risk of recurrence. And that is Colchicine. So colchicine given in a dose of, say, 0.5 milligram twice a day for two to three months is now a recommendation by the European Society of Cardiology. And of course, colchicine is not always tolerated by everybody. And some authorities do justify cutting down the dose in those patients who don't tolerate it to something like 0.5 milligram once a day or even once every other day, particularly in people with lighter body weight below the weight of 70. But it's important to continue with the colchicine for some time. I mentioned earlier recurrence. Recurrence happens in up to 30% of the patients presenting with acute pericarditis and happens in about 40 to 50 percent of patients with chronic pericarditis. And the colchicine treatment reduces those rates by more than 50%. So it's quite an effective way of treatment. Very rarely in recurrent pericarditis, which you may or may not wish to discuss later, we may resort to more drastic measures of pharmacological therapy, such as steroids, other immunosuppression, or specific immune modulation by addressing the interleukins. In terms of treatment for myocarditis, it's quite different. With myocarditis, you need to have a formal assessment of the impact of myocarditis on the ventricles. Not infrequently, patients with myocarditis will develop either transient or permanent myocardial damage. 
And this results in impairment of the left ventricle. In other words, they do develop heart failure with reduced left ventricle ejection fraction. For that group of patients, you would need to apply all you have in terms of armamentarium to treat the left ventricular systolic dysfunction. So that's not a treatment for myocarditis per se, but treatment for the consequences of myocarditis. So you give them ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, MRA such as spironolactone or eplerinone and so forth. But you also give them colchicine on the basis that there is almost always a pericarditic component. Plus, if the myocarditis is caused by a similar mechanism of inflammation, similar to what happens in pericarditis or an immune response, then you could affect that positively by giving cortisone. In those patients in particular, you wouldn't want to give non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents because A, that raises the blood pressure and retains sodium and water, and B, it can render some of your ACE inhibition ineffective. So please forget about non-sodals in myocarditis. The colchicine, however, in myocarditis need not be given for a long period of time. You only give it for the period when the patient is having the pain, and then you stop that and concentrate on treating the consequences. And in terms of auscultation with myocarditis, since we mentioned the auscultation in pericarditis, you frequently will hear muffling of the first heart sound. So your first heart sound is usually loud in the majority of patients, but you will detect with myocarditis that it is muffled. It is very soft. I think that is the main thrust of treatment for myocarditis. There are exceptions, of course, in fulminant myocarditis. Sometimes you might justify giving large doses of steroids, but that is not particularly evidence-based, except in a certain type of myocarditis, which is large cell myocarditis, which can only be confirmed on endomyocardial biopsies. And those are cases where the prognosis is very bad and you should really give immunosuppression to try and overcome the inflammation, although there is no definitive evidence that giving or not giving steroids will make a huge difference to the prognosis. But anyway, if you confirm the presence of a bad type of myocarditis, you may choose to give a large dose of steroids or even methylprednisolone IV. Okay. But we would hope that those patients were on their local coronary care unit anyway. And yes. those decisions would probably be out of the hands of junior doctors. At least I would hope I would not be making that decision. No, no, the decision needs uh, to be made by somebody who had seen many of those and they don't happen, luckily, that commonly. Yes. So I think that's a very good overview of what we should be looking at for pericarditis and myocarditis and the distinguishing features between the two. So if it's okay with you, I want to pose to you what happens very regularly on call, which is you get a phone call from either radiology or from, you know, a junior doctor that's read a CT report where there's been a CTPA, for example, or a CT just for another reason. And the radiologist has reported evidence of pericardial effusion with possible tamponade or heart strain. How should we be approaching those patients? Fantastic. That's a very important scenario, which, as you rightly said, happens not uncommonly. So pericardial effusions are not uncommon. 
they do tend to happen in some cases of pericarditis, as I mentioned earlier, not in everyone. They can be easily divided according to their size to small ones, that is less than 10 millimeter in depth, intermediate ones between 10 and 20 millimeter in depth, and large where it is above 20 millimeter. And those effusions may or may not be symptomatic, may or may not cause hemodynamic compromise. The way to approach that is exactly the same way you approach every clinical scenario. You go and see the patient. You take a history and you carry out detailed examination of the cardiovascular system and general examination of the patient. And I'll say why. So when I am faced with that scenario, I will ask the patient whether they have any symptoms. Of course, they have had a chest CT, so they must be either breathless or are having chest pain. So somebody thought they may have had a PE, but it wasn't. Because they have had the CT, I'm assuming they are symptomatic and they will be usually breathless. They may or may not have chest pain. Almost always, they will not have a pericardial friction rub. And the reason for that is because the two pericardial layers have become separated by the presence of the fluid. They may or may not have a temperature dependent on how fast the pericardial effusion has accumulated. So if it's a acute thing, it may well be associated with a low-grade temperature. It will be high temperature if it is an infection, whether it's viral or bacterial, or indeed TB. The patient's hemodynamics in this circumstance are paramount. So while I am talking to the patient, I will feel their hands, see if they are cold and clammy, are they shut down, do they look cyanosed? And while I'm talking to them, I will also take a glance at their neck. And if I can't, I'll simply, while still talking, because I want to not lose time, I will be asking them to turn their head to the left while I'm looking at their neck to see, is their jugular venous pressure elevated? And sometimes you cannot see the top end of their JVP when it's elevated. So please take yourself up the road to the ear and look for that nice earlobe. Is it dancing? Because sometimes if it's elevated up to the earlobe, you'll find subtle movement of the earlobes because of the rise and drop in that pressure. Sometimes you can't see it even there. Look at the patient's forehead. Are his veins engorged? Because if they were, then they have a raised JVP. I said he, it does not have to be he, it could be he or a she, of course, because many of these cases will unfortunately be associated with something else going on, such as cancer of the lung, or rarely cancer of the breast, but that is very rare, and also with pneumonia. So you need to carry out proper examination of the patient. You need to check their pulse. Ask them to take a deep breath in and out while you are feeling their pulse. Is the pulse volume dropping? And if it is, check please there the blood pressure and find out is the systolic pressure dropping or is it low? And whether it's low or not, try to check the blood pressure while they are taking a deep breath in and while they are taking a deep breath out. And is the difference between the two 10, less than 10, or above 10. The presence of a difference above 10 millimeter of mercury identifies 
pulses paradoxes. And if there is pulses paradoxes, then you are starting to worry about there being a tamponade. And when there is a tamponade, you go back and look at that JVP. If the JVP was not up to the earlobe, in other words, you can see the top end of it in the neck, then ask the patient to take a deep breath in and you will find that the JVP goes up on inspiration rather than going down on inspiration. Because as we all know, on inspiration, my intrathoracic pressure drops and therefore my intake into the right chambers, right ventricle, right atrium should increase. But it doesn't because the heart, if there is tamponade, will be squeezed by the pericardial effusion. So you get a Kussmaul sign in the neck when the JVP does rise on inspiration. And that's another sign to suggest tamponade. Of course, these are important signs, but they are not enough. You do an ECG and you may find two things. Number one, a small QRS complex instead of the larger QRS complex that the patient may have had on a previous ECG. That's an example. Also, you could find something called electrical alternance, similar to your pulses alternance that you get with heart failure. You see the QRS complexes changes from large QRS complex to a smaller one from one beat to the other because of the way the heart is a twisting and swimming within the large pericardial effusion. Your next step would be to do an emergency echocardiogram to assess the heart. And in that, you see, number one, that yes, there is fluid. Number two, you need to see, is it globular, globally surrounding the heart, or is it loculated? Because that is important in terms of what to do with it. You then look, is it clear fluid? You see absolutely black space, or is it cloudy? Does it have adhesions? Does it have masses? Does it have mobile lines of fibrin spreading within the space, because that can tell me whether there is pus or is there blood in that space. If there is tamponade, what I will see is collapse of the right atrium, the left atrium, and the right ventricle during diastole. And they collapse because the diastolic pressure in the said chambers becomes lower than the high pressure in the pericardial space. Now, if you were to find that the patient has tamponade, number one, you need to give them fluids to try and increase the pressure within the right atrium, right ventricle as measure of help for the hemodynamics. And number two, you need to take them to the cath lab and under x-ray screening and or echocardiographic control, get a needle into the pericardial space in your excellent hands. And can I ask, because there'll be, I think, a lot of juniors, or I hope there'll be a lot of juniors who during their time in training go through cardiology as a rotation. And I know that sometimes the cath lab can be very busy and we may just take the samples off and say to the juniors, can you please send these off to the lab? And some of the time we can be quite bad at explaining exactly what we want the pericardial fluid testing for. Yes, So what should be our basic investigations that all pericardial fluid should be subject to being tested for? Fantastic. So first of all, we need to look at the color of the fluid. Is it straw or is it 
bloody or is it blood? And of course, the registrar or consultant who is doing the procedure will be keeping a very close eye on the first sample if it's bloody to make sure that it's not clotted, because if it's clotting, then they are not in the pericardium, but probably somewhere else, or the pericardial tamponade is caused by an active bleed. Then you would want the junior to send the fluid for the following. You need to send it to chemistry to assess the content of the protein, and it's important to take simultaneously a sample of the patient's serum to see the amount of protein in the serum. Second thing, you need to look at the presence of any bacteria. So you need to send it for bacteriology. Sometimes if you are suspecting that there is pus and you don't want to wait for culture, if you spoke to microbiology, they might be prepared to do direct staining of a sample of fluid to look for bacteria and make a guess on the diagnosis. Of course, you need to send for culture and you need to send for AAFB because one of the infective processes is TB. And most important of all, you need to send one or two samples of at least 20 mils to cytology because the most common reason for blood in the pericardium is cancer and metastasis to the pericardium. And sometimes you can make the diagnosis for the first time of the malignancy by looking at that metastasis into the pericardial space. Okay, thank you. And how long should we be leaving after the patient has gone to the cath lab? Obviously, we take a sample off, but then usually we end up putting a drain in. How long should we be leaving those pericardial drains in for? Right. So the pericardial drain, you need to, first of all, dry out the place. So normally the operator will try to take as much as possible at the bedside before leaving the cath lab. But then you leave the drain to allow whatever is left in the pericardial space to come out, usually within 24, maximum 48 hours. I prefer not to leave it longer than that because the longer you leave it, the higher is the chance of there being secondary sepsis in the pericardium, which is not only very painful, but it is dangerous because it's sepsis on its own, right? And it needs proper treatment for no less than two weeks if it happens, and it can cause adhesions and land us in the territory of constriction, which is not only a complication of infection caused iatrogenically by us, leaving the drain for long, but it can be a complication of all types of pericarditis. Great. So we would just look at the pericardial drain, look at the output. As soon as there's no longer output, we need to get that drain out as soon as possible. True, but after repeating the echo. So you always do another echo before you take the drain out to make sure that you haven't got any loculation of fluid. I mentioned the loculation earlier. And of course, other than tamponade, an absolute tamponade, if there is loculation, it might be better for a surgeon to go in and do this either through the thorax or subxivoid. So either your thoracic surgeon or cardiac surgeon can clear the fluid for you and the space. Okay. Great. Thank you. And just, I think if we mentioned just very, very briefly, I know that you said that one of the common causes of a pericardial effusion can be either a primary cancer or a metastatic cancer, although I think most commonly it would be a metastasis. If yes. we were to come across a pericardial mass on some form of imaging, what should our approach be for either sending off further investigations or referrals for this patient? Or what should we be looking for in either the history or the examination? Yes. So 
as you rightly pointed out, primary pericardial tumors are extremely uncommon. I have seen a few, but there are less than 10 cases in over 30-something years of cardiology training and then practice as a consultant. But secondary tumors, I have seen plenty very many. So the first thing to remember here is that the mass is more likely to be metastasis than not. So the patient needs to be examined properly head to toe with full history, the appropriate imaging carried out. So if there is I mean, we do know that the lung is the most common source, so proper imaging of the lungs with or without bronchoscopy. A CT tap these days is very helpful. An MRI scan of the heart, but at that point, I would expect the patient to have had a proper cardiological input because it is better, in my opinion, for the cardiac MRI to be requested and dealt with by the cardiologist because with MRI, you can also not only identify the size and the position of of the mass, but you can also have some estimate of the tissue that this mass is composed of because the MRI is now so sophisticated with so many sequences that can allow us to guess whether it is fatty tissue, whether it is a muscle and gives us an idea about vascularity. And of course, this is not something you would want to biopsy because these are frequently very vascular, but these are, if a biopsy was to be done, it will be a surgical biopsy. And ideally, it should be taken as part of an excision biopsy rather than a sampling biopsy by a surgeon. If the planning by MRI and echo was to show that this is a potential mass that we can excise in total. Okay. The treatment, of course, depends on the type of the tumor. If it is a cancerous tumor, whether it's primary or secondary, the prognosis is not good. The treatment includes radiotherapy and chemotherapy, but these are usually palliative. That's great. I think we've covered as much as we can of the pericardium, pericardial disease, and how we as junior doctors should be going about taking effective histories and examining the patients, as well as getting very targeted investigations. I think it's very important that we don't just do investigations without understanding why we're doing them and how they will affect diagnosis and management. So thank you ever so much for your time, Prof. That's been very useful. And thank you everyone for listening to us. That was my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me.